Well, it is, uh, it's so good to be here, so good to worship with you. It's a, it's a privilege um, to share with you this morning. That it, this is a church I'm thankful for. I, too, have recommended you to others, and, and so I'm, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for Pastor Steve and his encouragement to me. Um, in particular, he's helped me to build relationships with other churches and, and other leaders. It's, he, he, as you know, he's very good at networking. He knows a lot of people. Um, because of my personality, my tendency is to kind of keep my head down and, and just kind of serve our church and not be too active in broader circles. Um, I described it this way at a leadership panel that I was doing actually here at, at Living Hope. And some people have FOMO, the fear of missing out. I have phobia, the fear of being invited, because I, really, I don't really need to be anywhere. And, um, but Pastor Steve's friendship has encouraged me to build relationships that have become very meaningful to me, uh, and, and especially his. Um, it's a particular blessing to share with you on this year, 28th anniversary. What a testament to God's grace that is. I was uh, visiting a church a, a couple of weeks ago in North Carolina. I spoke there, their second year anniversary. And so to be here on kind of on the other side of that, what a, a grace that is. And so with your anniversary in mind, the topic I've chosen this morning is love. It, it might sound, um, and specifically, I'm sorry, our love for one another. And Maybe that sounds a bit mundane, but the reason I share is that I think for your church, just like our church, this is necessary for us to kind of move forward beyond what has been a uniquely difficult season that most of us have experienced. In fact, the message I'm going to give you, I first preached at Lighthouse, so don't think that um, your, your pastor told me about what's going on in your marriage or how you're responding to COVID or I heard about your relationships with your coworkers. I'm actually going to share with you a much shorter and a much kinder version of the message I gave at our church. But the hope is that it will encourage you as you enter this next season of life and ministry. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 13. And let me begin our time by asking this question. How many times have you said, or at least thought, it's not fair? Uh, I think all of us are familiar with the idea. We felt it. If you have kids, you've definitely heard it. I mean, imagine a child got a smaller piece of dessert than their siblings. Has ever in the history of the world that kid said, Mother, it is so great that you gave that, my, my sibling a bigger piece of dessert. That brings me such joy to my heart. I mean, all of us struggle when something doesn't seem fair. It's the idea that there's something that's not equal. There's a lopsidedness to an interaction. There's an inequity involved. We felt it, and most often we despise it. Maybe even now you're wrestling with a situation or even a whole relationship that seems unfair. Maybe it's work where you're struggling with some sort of injustice or you're passed for promotion, you deserved, or a coworker is treating you poorly, a boss doesn't appreciate you, maybe something involved with COVID. Maybe it's ministry where you feel like you're carrying a heavier load than others or you're not receiving the recognition you deserve or you don't agree with the decisions being made. Maybe it's a friendship where you feel like you've been faithful and yet the other person just keeps failing. Uh, maybe they seem to make less effort or they broke confidence or they used hurtful words or spoke about you behind your back. Maybe it's with your parents. You're struggling to love them. It seems unfair, the rules that they have for you. Maybe it's a relationship with your in-laws or a situation on your sports team or something with your roommates. What about the biggest, possibly the biggest example of marriage? I'm guessing if you're married that at some point or another you felt like things were unfair. Maybe even right now you do. You did more, you loved better, you forgave quicker, you worked harder while the other person broke your trust or they seemed so selfish or spoke unkindly or often lazy. And what makes it especially difficult to have a a clear understanding of it all is that our, our culture preaches this idea of fairness and equity. 
Relationships are meant to be 50-50 or give and take. You scratch my back, I will scratch yours. They're supposed to be a compromise and balance. Now, as a side note, when I preached this sermon at Lighthouse, my, the nine-year-old son literally asked me uh, to scratch his back. And I said, well, okay, but are you going to scratch my back? And he said, no, relationships aren't 50-50. You should just scratch my back. <laughs> Which means he simultaneously heard my sermon and missed the point of my sermon. <laughs> But as Christians, if we're honest, though things seem a bit off about that idea of 50-50, we long for it. We don't want to give more than we receive, right? None of you are complaining because someone is loving you too well. No one comes to our, our, our counseling ministry at Lighthouse because someone is serving them way too much. We long for fairness. But what if? What if fairness actually isn't the goal of Christian relationships? What if fairness is a false baseline for our interactions, What if fairness is a worldly standard that draws our gaze inward rather than upward and outward where it's meant to be? What if fair isn't really loving at all? Just our culture's counterfeit, masquerading as love, but really selfishness in disguise. In the passage we're going to look at today, Jesus places before us a picture of love that was inherently unfair. A love that was anything but a 50-50 enterprise, and yet it's that kind of love that he's calling us to. I mean, understand that what makes a Christian love, uh, a Christian's love unique from the world is that it's specifically it is humble, sacrificial, and unfair. And that gives us our key idea for this morning. Christian love, by its very nature, is the pursuit of what is unfair. Now, one caveat before we dive into the the story. In speaking of unfair relationships, I'm not speaking about fairness and totality or about being indifferent to injustice. In other words, we should hate injustice because the Bible hates injustice. If you were to hear of someone being abused or a coworker being taken advantage of or, or, or you saw racial bias, it would be right to fight against those things. For example, abuse in any form is wrong and needs to be dealt with. The unfairness this passage speaks about is really the personal decisions that we make to bring about inequity into our relationships. In other words, we want to make it our goal to love much more than we are loved, to serve much more than we are served. We want our personal relationships to be unequal in the sense that we have chosen to love so faithfully, so perseveringly, so humbly that it's seemingly unfair. And what this means is that we actually fight for injustice in other, we, we fight against injustice in other people's lives, uh, but in a sense, we pursue injustice in our own. With that, let me read to you our story. It's a well-known one. I'm only going to read kind of the heart of the story, but as we go through the study, I'll reference more of the passage. John 13, verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Well-known story, famous story, but let's go through this and see what it means to seek unfairness in our relationships by considering three ways to pursue Christ-like love. First idea, we must recognize and fight our lack of love. Okay, We must recognize and fight our lack of love. I mean, fundamental to this is to remember that ultimately the problem of love resides in our hearts. Okay, this is how I described it in the counseling class I taught here. I I have three sons, one daughter. Uh, My daughter is now in high school. 
And the way I describe her is before she was born, I was kind of either hoping for the feisty tomboy or the sweet girly girl, and I got the feisty girly girl. And it's kind of the worst of both worlds. Um, <laughs> even yesterday, like 45 minutes before we had to leave for what <clears throat> ended up being a very physical, very high-level soccer game, she's wearing a Korean face mask, right? And so that's her world. And needless to say, I love her, and, and it, it's a scary to think about her life, about when she dates, when, like 30 years or whatever that is, when... <laughs> In fact, a while back, I told her older brothers, I said, hey, you guys need to watch out for her. And they said, why? I said, well, you know, like someone might want to date her one day. And they're like, they thought that was ridiculous. They're like, oh, no, trust me, dad, no one's going to want to date her. <laughs> but recently they realized, okay, she's in high school. And one of them even said to her, hey, Chris, if, if a boy asks you for a phone number, I want you to give him this number. And he just rattles off some number. And so I asked him what it was. And he said, I don't know. I saw it. It's an addiction hotline. It's on TV. <laughs> So at least they're, they're helping me out a little. But what is my thinking in all this for my daughter? That the problems are outside of her. It's boys, it's the world, whatever. But the Bible says the greatest danger is inside of us, the sin and idolatry of our hearts. And the same is true for love. It's not about the other person. It's about ourselves. In other words, our ability to love isn't first what is happening around us or to us. It is what is happening within us. It's not about the state of our circumstances, but the state of our hearts. Let's look at our text. Our our story is a picture of love apart from the cross, one of the greatest we have in all of Scripture. It is so significant that, that later in the passage, Jesus establishes a new commandment from it because it's meant to become this model of Christian love. But understand, though the, the picture is one of love, the context is one of selfishness. So he's not just offering this random lesson on love. He's speaking directly to the selfishness of the disciples. We see from the Luke account uh, that likely right before this arose an argument as to who was the greatest. Okay, so definitely not raised by Asian parents because they had not learned the skill of pretending to be humble. So so think about that. After three years of intense discipleship, of witnessing Jesus' life, of hearing the God-man teach and tell them things like, the last shall be first, Uh, And on the night before he would be crucified and suffer hell in their place, they are arguing who is the greatest. Not only that, but Jesus washes their feet because they're unwilling to wash. uh, There's no one else willing to do it. And and I don't think they're unwilling to wash his feet. They're just unwilling to wash one another's feet. That's why later he doesn't say, you ought to to wash my feet. He says, you ought to wash one another's feet. No one's willing to do it. So again, the lesson is love, but the context is one of selfishness and And yet with this, I think it's easy for us to kind of remove ourselves from the story. Like on one hand, we think, okay, I would have never done that. I totally would have been washing everyone's feet. Or we simply see the story as this mild encouragement to love better. But neither of these attitudes approaches scripture with the humility necessary for true change. We have to understand until we recognize our own lack of love, our own selfishness, we will not grow in love. And so just a couple of truths to recognize our selfishness. First, our sin blinds us to our own sin. I mean, even as you weigh the scales of love in your relationships, understand our hearts are not the best measuring system because they are clouded by sin. Right? Like a, like a computer program with a virus, our hearts are flawed by our own depravity. And so we are not great judges of ourselves or others. The point being, don't assume that your evaluation of yourself is perfect and definitely don't assume your evaluation of others is perfect. And second, our sin will mean that we'll justify our sin. In fact, as crazy as it sounds, we will use the concept of fairness to justify our unfairness. 
an idea that we, we talk a lot about at Lighthouse is kind of this wrong belief that um, gets into relationships and it's, yet it's detrimental. And it's the idea that your sin makes my sin not a sin. In other words, if you sin against me, then I'm justified in responding and sin back. If you yell at me, I'm justified in yelling back. If you're unkind or sarcastic or lazy or selfish, I'm justified in my anger. If you're unloving to me, I'm justified in being unloving to you. And yet take a moment and consider what we are doing. We are using the concept of righteousness, fairness, to justify our unrighteousness. We use fairness to justify our own unfairness. And the point being, our sin means we will justify our sin. Even now, maybe someone comes to mind that you're struggling to love, and my guess is there's a hundred reasons why you think it's okay. But do you understand what we're really saying when we don't love? We are basically saying that we're greater than Jesus. Notice what Jesus does, says after he washes their feet in verses 14 and 16. He says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. A servant is not greater than his master. So to hear his argument, he's saying if he loves, so should we, because we're less than him. It's pretty straightforward logic, but now consider the implications. If I refuse to serve, then I'm saying serving's okay for Jesus, but not for me. In other words, I'm a servant who is greater than my master. Sobering, isn't it? I mean, as ugly as it is, it just tells you the nature of sin. Right? Understand that sin takes the love that is meant to be directed upward to God and then overflow outward to others, and it bends it inward until we become the greatest objects of our own affection. And so again, we, we, we must not remove ourselves from this story. In fact, Jesus brings us into the story later when he says this in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. The point being, we are not mere observers of this story 2,000 years later. This is our story. It's a picture of selfishness we're all too familiar with, and yet it's a picture of love that Christ is calling us to. And So with that, let me offer you a challenge. Be committed to growing in love, despite what anyone else is doing in your life. Again, maybe that person comes to mind, and you're thinking, well, if you knew them. But don't, don't think of this message as something you hope someone else listens to. Right, even right now, you might be thinking about sending this message to someone that you think needs to love better, and by that, you probably mean love you better. But before you awkwardly look over at your husband to see if they're really paying attention, just stop and, and consider your own life. The power of God's truth will be lost on you if you're more worried about other people hearing it. Believe this. This is speaking to you, and, and dwell and dwell on the truths that it holds. With this in mind, just two simple applications. First, to pursue humility, we should begin with repentance. Now, this is hard because for some of you, you have loved well. You are in what we might call unfair relationships. And so for you to hear that you need to still repent from your lack of love seems a bit unfair. But if you want to change, this is where it starts. You must repent for your anger you've displayed, for the bitterness you feel, for the self-righteousness that exists, for the discontentment in your heart, even if it's way, way less than the other person. Change starts when we turn from sin to our Savior, and so you must humbly repent and, and ask for forgiveness, not only for acting like you're better than others, but really for acting like you're better than Christ. Again, that's the essence of a lack of love, the bold declaration that we are better than Jesus. He should love, but I shouldn't have to. Beyond repentance, second is just pursue, to, pursue humil- to pursue love, constantly gaze 
uh, at Christ. Jesus gives us this example and he says, uh, and, then, uh, and then tells us to be like him. In other words, he's washing feet and he says, look at me so you'll love like me. I think too often we're looking at others and what they're doing or not doing, all the ways they've wronged us, their sharp words, their lack of health, their sins and failures. And, and then we think about how much we do, right? Like, uh, keeping this mental ledger of all the ways that we serve and love and how gracious and kind we've been. And that just fuels our pride and self-righteousness. And none of us like to think we're self-righteous, but that's really what it is when we think about how good we are and how bad other people are. So instead of fueling that pride, we must fuel our faith in Christ. For instance, meditate on this passage this week. Just read it over and over. Because I really believe if you consider it, if you think about it, if you contemplate the implications, if you are amazed at the love of Jesus, your heart will be changed. Okay, number two. We must embrace the sacrificial and unfair nature of love. Again, it's easy to see love as 50-50. My wife I mean, loves to jog, loves to jog, which I totally support and I totally don't understand, right? Because some of you are with me, right? And, and so when we started dating, though, I decided to go jogging with her and we start to run and, and then she starts this conversation and she's asking me questions and, and I literally had to, like physically, we had to stop and I said, look, we can jog or we can talk. We can't do both, right? Because I, I need to breathe. So... So I love her by jogging. She loves me by letting me breathe. But 50-50, that's how we think of things. We, we want give and take. And yet Jesus is arguing so, for so much more. And understand, this isn't simply like this object lesson. Again, like Jesus is just, okay, today's lesson is on love, right? Uh, Jesus loved his disciples. In verse 1 of our passage, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Remember, he's going to go to the cross for them the next night. Again, listen to verses 4. Four and five, and consider his love. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Having grown up in the church, I, I've heard the story many times, and the thing that always stood out to me was how disgusting this job must have been. My, my Sunday school teachers would not only emphasize the dirt, but because there's animals around, uh, how gross that must have been, like manure gross. And it was this job that only the lowliest of servants would do. And and yet, think about that. This is Jesus. I mean, he could have done other things to demonstrate his love in the moment. He could have paid for the meal or cooked the food or even cleaned up afterwards. But by washing their feet, it offers this stunning picture of humble love. And the application is obvious, mainly because Jesus tells us what it is. In verse 14, he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Then in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And though the lesson is simple enough, love one another, let me offer three ideas to kind of deepen and challenge our understanding of the love of Jesus uh, that he's calling us to. And I'll spend the most of the time on the, the third idea. But the first one is this. This love was a response to selfishness. I already pointed this out, but the context of the situation was Jesus loving those who are selfish. And, and often our, our favorite relationships are those people who are easy to love, friends who are faithful, spouses who are helpful, kids who are grateful, coworkers who are gracious. But where we struggle to love is where others are not like us. And so already this call to love is a bit more difficult. Because if you're thinking, well, obviously Jesus understands if I don't love that person, realize the story is exactly about Jesus calling you to love that person. That person who hurt your feelings, that person who differs than you on politics or COVID protocol, that person who is ungrateful, that person who failed you in some way. In fact, one of the most shocking parts of the story is that Jesus washed the feet of, of Judas. 
And so, yeah, your friend might be pretty lousy, but can you honestly say they're Judas lousy? I've done a fair amount of marriage counseling. I've never had a wife describe her husband that way. Like, okay, thank Judas, but way worse. Okay, it's like no one does that because everyone knows Judas is the worst. Who are you having trouble? Are they worse than Judas? The point being, this is a call to love the sinful and the selfish. Second idea, this love was a costly, even humiliating act of service. I think all of us actually have types of service that we enjoy. This is not that kind of service. The love displayed in our story was not the fun kind of love. It's not about doing what we enjoy doing or using our gifts or finding our wheelhouse. It was dirty and disgusting. It was selfless and sacrificial. So again, it gets harder. Jesus wasn't simply saying to to find little ways to be kind. He's saying be willing to do the worst of it. So we have to ask ourselves, what what in our relationships are the foot-washing activities? Like, what do you hate to do? Or maybe you should be asking, what does the other person hate to do? And that's what Jesus is calling you to do. Now, as tough as that is, I think this third one is where most of us really get stuck. The third idea is this. This love was inherently unfair. Again, this is not quid pro quo. This is not 50-50. I mean, Jesus would have been more than justified to stand up and say, hey, this is not fair. I mean, if, I, if I'm him, I'm, I'm pulling that king of the universe card all the time. Right? I'm the king of the universe, guys. Let's get this together. And it was more than just how disgusting this job was. It was more the fact that he was washing feet and others weren't. It's the idea of the creator washing the feet of his creation. And if that wasn't enough in inequity, remember, the disciples aren't going to pay him back. This isn't give and take. In fact, the very next day, Jesus would take his humble, sacrificial, unfair love a step further and go to the cross and die for their sins, as Romans 5.8 says. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My point being, the love that Jesus demonstrates and calls us to, it's an unfair love. Isn't this difficult? I mean, it's so different than how often we understand love. The idea of giving and not getting just grates against our sinful hearts. But realize this is not just biblical truth. It's simple logic. If there is no sacrifice in love, then it's simply a transaction. That's what a fair relationship is. It's a transaction, a well-balanced transaction. Imagine I go into a store and I buy a sandwich. It costs $10. I pay $10. Would anyone say that owner is so loving He just gave Kim a sandwich for $10, and all he had to do was pay $10. No, that was a transaction. The owner gave only because he got. No one is writing books or making movies about that kind of a thing because it isn't love. Now, if I'm homeless and I went in there and he gave me a sandwich for free, that would be loving. No chance of repayment, no advertising benefit, probably annoys the people in there. So to pursue fair relationships is not to pursue loving relationships. It's to pursue an equitable transaction. If you're, you're, you're willing to give as long as you receive. Too often that is our understanding of relationships. Emotional business deals. Right? A transaction where love is the currency. And I understand Jesus pointed out the same thing. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Rob Green ties it, or puts it this way in Tying the Knot. It's the premarital counseling book we use at, at Lighthouse. He says, if your definition of love is little more than warm fuzzies, physical attraction, and the ability to have fun together, your relationship may demonstrate not how you love the other person, but how much you each love yourself. What you have found is a person who helps you love you better than anyone else has. That's a sobering and scary thought. Scary thought. 
So where does that leave us? With, with, with the challenging reality that if we're going to love well, we must pursue unfair relationships. We must be willing, willing to truly sacrifice, as Jesus said in Luke 6, to, to, to love expecting nothing in return. Okay, not like a little bit in return, but nothing in return. This means loving those in-laws who have not loved you well, or rather than having FOMO that you weren't invited, actually being excited for others and their joy. It means doing things around the house that you hate. It means being willing to res- uh, not to receive the credit you deserve at work. It means being thankful when someone else is recognized in ministry. Or again, the big one is marriage. Is your heart discontent? Are you withholding love? Are you getting upset? Are you growing in bitterness because your marriage seems unfair? Have you ever considered that if you think it's unfair, you might actually be loving well? Because the moment it is fair is likely the moment you have stopped truly serving. So the question we should be asking really isn't, why is my marriage unfair, but why isn't it unfair? So please, let the Holy Spirit bring his loving conviction to, to your hearts. We, we cannot be content with transactional relationships. We must pursue unfair and yet loving relationships. Relationships that desire to give and not get, that, that hope to love, receiving nothing in return. We must love like Christ, who, as it says in verse 1, love them to the end. Dane Ortland in, in his book, Lo, uh, Gentle and Lowly, puts it this way. He says, Jesus does not love like us. We love until we're betrayed. Jesus continued to the cross despite betrayal. We love until we are forsaken. Jesus loved through forsakenness. We love up to a limit. Jesus loved to the end. Point number three, we must make love our mission. Okay, so what is your mission? What is your goal? What is your purpose? Success in some way, maybe having kids who do well. What, what do you really, if, if you think about this week, what does it say about what's important to you? I mentioned my daughter, her, her goal in life is to win. I mean, she's competitive, like idolatrously so. She, she, she had a soccer practice. She lost some drill. I didn't, I didn't know about that at the time. And then we played a board game that night, and I, and I happened to win. And so before bed, she said, hey, Dad, let's, uh, let's play rock, paper, scissors. And I said, what? And she's like, I need to get a win. I was like, okay, this is too much, right? <laughs> and in fact, a little while back, we were, we were leaving the hospital. Her and I were visiting a member in the church, and we parked on the top floor of the parking structure, and as we were leaving, she said, you want to race? I'll take the stairs. You can take the elevator. So that's my kind of race, right? Obviously, I'm pressing a button. So uh, yeah, so I said, sure, and I'm going up, and of course, it stops at the first floor, right? And no one gets on or off, and then the second floor, and the third floor, and every floor, and finally get to the top. She's waiting there for me, and she said, you know what I did? She said, I came out of the stairwell and pressed every button on the way up. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm trying to tell you, this is a hospital. Like People are visiting sick people, like dying people. And in my mind, I'm thinking, gosh, I wish I thought of that. I mean, her goal is to win, but really that's most of our goals. Maybe not in sports or competitions, but we want to win. We want to be successful. We want kids to get into a certain college. We want to ace that exam. We want to win. But this passage is actually telling us something different. And I don't have I don't have time to go too deeply here, but our, as our story continues, there's this scene between Simon Peter and Jesus, and, and, we, and Jesus explained his mission isn't what Peter or his disciples think it is. In verses 6 to 11, we find that Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. He says, like, no thanks, right? And Jesus then switches the illustration of washing as an example of love to washing as an example of salvation. 
Right, in verse 8, he says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And he's referring to the gospel. Remember, we're sinners. And in Scripture, it's pictured by this uncleanliness. Our, our hearts are dirtied by sin. And with this, we are separated from God and only deserve hell. But the night after this, Jesus would go to the cross and suffer the punishment we deserve so that we can be cleansed from our sin and brought back into a relationship with God. And so Jesus is telling Peter that if he wants to be in a relationship with him, he must be cleansed from his sin. But the location of this at first seems odd. He uses washing to illustrate humble love. Then he uses it to illustrate, uh, for, to for, refer to forgiveness of sins. And then he changes it back to refer to an illustration of humble love. But understand what Jesus is doing here. He's explaining what his love would really be about. Because right? the disciples, if Jesus loved them, then he would maybe rescue them from Roman oppression or something along those lines. But Jesus is changing their understanding of who he is from conquering king to suffering servant. His mission was not one of military victory, but of sacrificial saving love. And as he points out in verse 35, when we love, we actually join this mission. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in a sense, we're joining Jesus on his mission. But think about this. Jesus was on this mission of love to bring salvation to the lost. And amazingly, we're invited on that mission by witnessing through our love. And so Jesus is saying, this is what our lives are about. He's reorienting our understanding of our mission. All this to say, we must orient our lives around this idea of sacrificial, humble love. And so living hope, this is where I challenge you consider how you must love. Right? This life is not about surviving pandemics or having successful kids or getting ahead at work or excelling in school or sports. Life is about love. I mean, if you think about it, these last 18 or so months have been a season where it's been very easy to look inward. My health, my comfort, my family safety, my political beliefs, my view on church, my emotional well-being. But biblically, none of these trump the admonition to love. That is the crux of the human life, to love God and to love others. Like I mentioned, I, I spoke, uh, when I spoke at that church in North Carolina, two-year anniversary, and, and the pastor told me they barely survived the pandemic. Here you are, 28 years later. So while I was just trying to encourage them and give them a little hope, my challenge to you is to love. Because I believe the foundation for the next 28 years is how you will love one another. How you once again engage one another in relationships. How you look beyond differing views on various controversial issues. How you open up your homes and do life together. How you stop following your heart and instead follow Christ in the ways that you minister and serve. How you share the gospel in a culture increasingly hostile to it. How you forgive, serve, be generous, encourage, pray. And all of this especially when it is undeserved. And so Living Hope, my challenge to you is to pursue a love that is unfair. Let me close with this. Now this probably sounds a bit challenging, especially on a day where you're celebrating. And part of it's because it's so contrary to the world, because the Bible is telling us that we must live these, these truth-oriented lives, not these feeling-oriented lives, right? It's not just about loving those that we feel like loving. And that may be hard for some of you, because maybe for some of you, it's, there's some people that are really hard to love, people who have significantly hurt you. But please understand that with this high call to love is this incredible blessing. Verse 17, Jesus says this, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
Now, you might be tempted to rush by this, but just get what Jesus is saying. Blessing isn't in getting what we want, what, what, or that people serve us, or that we have these equitable relationships. That's usually what we think. He's saying there's real blessing, greater blessing, more enduring blessing that comes through loving sacrifice and the pursuit of unfair relationships. And yet, if you think about it, it makes total sense. For some of you, your greatest sorrows are relationships. Your worries, your angers, they, they come in this struggle to love someone else. But imagine just for a moment, if you could, how joyful would you be? Think about that relationship, that person that's hard. Imagine you could love them. Right? For some of you, you feel like a relationship has been unfair. And so for you, you, you struggle with frustration and bitterness. Are you happy in that? But what if instead of hating unfairness, you pursued unfairness and actually found joy in unfairness? What if you rejoiced at the chance to wash people's feet? What if you put away the mental ledger of who is loving better and just threw it on the fire of the gospel, never to be read, never to be bothered by it again? What if you believed the happiness of serving others is far greater than the happiness of being served by others? Because as Jesus says, it is better to give than to receive. That would be blessing and that would be joy. Some of you, you come and you're hoping that your circumstances change or you're hoping another person changes, but believe what scripture tells us. The path to joy is when our heart changes. And so again, living hope, go forward and love in such a way that all people know that you are Christ's disciples. Will you pray with me? Dearly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, there is a high calling to love here, but what joy there is when we are freed from our hatred and our bitterness and our anger. And so, Lord, I pray that you would be with this church. Lord, you've been so gracious to get them to 28 years, and yet as they enter this 29th year, maybe the year where they recommit themselves to loving so well that the watching world has no choice but to be convinced that they are the disciples of Christ. And Lord, I pray for those who come this morning who are especially hurting, who are in unfair relationships, who are uh, being hurt in some way, Lord, that, that have suffered or sacrificed, maybe loving so well and not receiving anything in return. And I pray, Lord, that your word would encourage their hearts as they realize the joy of loving like their Savior. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.